0: Hello there ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. Now, I do apologise for the lateness of this episode. Um, we have had a few tragedies in the family um, on my wife's side and it's just been a little bit difficult to find time to record and obviously things take priority when uh, situations like that arise. So I do hope you all understand and uh, forgive me for the lateness of the episode but we are going to do a bit of a fun episode today considering it's a war story considering it's, uh, it there is death involved it, it's a war hero story and it is quite a, um, a poignant story that I think is kind of forgotten, I do find obviously now we are over 100 years after the, the first world war I think people forget about the hero stories and and they're sort of not really spoken about. We had like an insurgence around the the 50s where people would create these war stories um as films there was a few films brought out um but obviously now these films are redundant, you know, they're not as good as they used to be. Um and obviously People just forget about these stories. And I think it, this is where shows like this are really, really important to remember things that happened um, over a 100 years ago, especially it's war hero stories. So this story is actually called The Lost Battalion. Now, it's a bit of a nomenclature because The Lost Battalion was never actually lost. They knew where they were the entire time they just couldn't get to them now for those of you who know me or listen to the show you are aware I'm a big Sabaton fan this is another one of their songs Um, I didn't actually realise this was one of their songs until about six weeks ago uh, where it came on a shuffle playlist and I was like oh I like that song that's quite good looked into it a little bit more turns out this is a, a very very interesting story so I thought I would cover it as well so this is in the fall of 1918, um, and it's it's important to remember this, with the First World War, and I, I always say, we get a lot of Americans on the show, they say, oh well, yeah, if it wasn't for us, you'd be speaking German, and we always go, no, 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 it's not, it's, it's Hitler decided to attack the Russians, and if Hitler hadn't have decided to attack the Russians, then Hitler would have, he would still have beaten the Americans, but... Although that, I believe, is true, had it not have been for the First World War, had it not have been for the influx of 2 million American soldiers onto the Western Front, we wouldn't have won that war. So, the Second World War is redundant, almost, because we wouldn't have won the first, had it not have been for the Americans. And this is one of the reasons... The 500 American infantry men were cut off from their regiment and surrounded by Germans during the five days of fighting in the Argonne Forest. Um, now, they would be remembered forever, like I said, as the Lost Battalion, but they were never really lost. Um, the They always said, you know, back in, in the States and, and the, the stories about them, they, also, they always said, you know, you were never lost. We always knew where you were and one of the soldiers replied, yeah, you did and so did the Germans because they had five days of fighting on their own surrounded by Germans. Um, the only nearby Americans were uncertain about their location um, and they they knew they were, they knew roughly where they were. One of the lieutenants, the only way they had uh, an A way of getting messages back was through carrier pigeons one of the lieutenants who actually sent the first carrier pigeon gave the coordinates ever so slightly wrong which meant one of the days they were actually being shelled by their own artillery Um, they were called the doughboys there were around 550 men and they were survivors from the four battalions of the New York 77th Division Infantry They had been hit hard during the previous week's opening drive from the big American offensive that fortified the German lines um, in the Argonne Forest and the Meuse River. This was General John Pershing's um, all-out effort to show the world that the United States' First Army could win the war before Christmas by breaking through a sector on the Western Front that the enemy had held position for four years Now Pershing had warned his corps and division commanders that uh, he wanted no alibis no slowdowns and no retreats. Basically he was a general that had a plan, he wanted this plan to be effective he wasn't going to take any pushbacks or anything as as an answer the problem is he did not understand trench warfare at that time and his idea was artillery shell them for as long as we can and then just send the men they they have to win um and he didn't really understand the whole concept of the trench warfare in the first world war um i'm assuming the fact that it was 1918 um as a general i'm not i believe he'd never seen real action um, you know, the the American Wars were quite a few years before that, um, I'm not sure he'd ever seen any real action, um, I don't know that, that's just an assumption, but obviously the, the American Civil War was quite a few years before that, um, the Mexican War was quite a few years before that, the Revolutionary War was even further behind, so um, I think... Realistically, he'd he'd probably seen very, very little, if any, action at all, so wasn't aware of the digging in on the Western Front. Well, the big push started on the morning of September the 26th after a 24-hour bombardment by artillery. This dropped 40,000 tons of explosive onto the German lines and more shells than all of the cannons and the ammunition fired in the Union army by this in the civil war so in 24 hours they fired more explosives at the germans than the union did in the entire civil war at the confederates the 77th division in the thickest section of the Argonne forest on the far left flank of pershing's forces moved ahead rapidly during the first day's advance assaulting one enemy position after another the German positions built in depth through the forest were elaborately equipped with block houses and concrete roofs somewhere 20 inches thick. Um, breaking into these was difficult um, and it, it astonished the Americans who even found bathtubs and hot and cold running water inside these, these structures that the Germans had built. So, um, you know, in one of them, they even found a bowling alley, billiards tables, pantries that were stocked with wine and meat, um, electric power, underground dormitories, um, bunks for fifty men. The Germans were undisturbed in the Argonne Forest for four years and were living pretty, pretty well considering the rest of the Western Front was, a, you know kind of bad, I was going to say a shithole, but um, it, it was war, and realistically what they just experienced was hell on earth, and they're coming into these places that have got hot and cold running water and electric and a bowling alley, and all built in to their western front, so I suppose, I mean when we, I always say that the the American Not the Americans, sorry. The German trenches were always better than the British trenches. And the reason for that is the Germans were holding a line. They'd built their line. They'd built their defences. That was where they were stopping. They were not going to advance. They were already in France and Belgium. They weren't going any further. They were just trying to win the war. The Americans, the British, the French, their job was to push back the german lines so their trenches were forever moving their trenches were redug their trenches weren't there for them to live in they were there for them to protect them so um i put it down to that more or less that the german trenches were slightly better and better equipped i don't think anyone realized until this day how well equipped they actually were um after the encouraging first day's advance, um, about four to six miles, these uh, the seventy-seventh division got through. Now, just to give you a bit of an idea, normally in an offensive in the First World War, you were probably lucky to capture the other trench in a day. Some of these trenches were less than a hundred yards apart. They, they didn't conquer very much land and this is why the war went on for so long and so many men died because it was so back and forth there was you would get 10 yards we would get 10 yards and the thing is you'd get 10 20 yards into no man's land and then you'd have to fall back to your trench because they're resupplying that trench and their their lines it's very unlikely you're going to take the whole trench, you might take a little section of it, and then you're going to, it it was just a nightmare, an absolute nightmare, but this division managed to get between four and six miles, into the German line, so absolutely unrivaled, the American attack stalled, after this day at the Argonne, Um, and all along the first Army's eastward, The eastward position, all the way to the right, they they didn't get very far. The assault on the 26th of September, Pershing wrote, surprised the Germans and disrupted their defense, but this situation was only momentarily. From that day on, the fighting was probably unsurpassed during the World War for dogged determination on both sides. That was Pershing looking back on the calm situation after the war. Okay, probably not how he felt on the day. At the time, this was the opening drive, and it stopped on October the first. He was furious um, and didn't praise the determination of his troops because they hadn't achieved the objective he wanted. He ordered them to get moving again the next day without regard of losses of life. Um, or without regard to the exposed flanks that they had in their line. When Pershing's orders was to renew the attack, um, it came down the channels to Major Charles Wittersley, commanding the officer of the 1st Battalion, the 308th Infantry, in the 77th Division. The Major looked at it with dismay. He talked it over with Captain George McMultry. McMurty, sorry, not Moultrie, put an L in there for some reason, the acting commander of the 308th 2nd Battalion, which was to advance in close support to Wittersley's men the next morning. Heavy casualties had already cut their battalions down to half between them, um, and they only had about 800 men instead of the regular 1,600. So that's a big loss of life in those first five days. Um, And now they're being told... Yeah, you did well, but you didn't do well enough. Out you go again. You've got less men. It's not as easy. You know, and you've got to remember at this point, the Americans couldn't reinforce themselves. They were 2,000 miles away. There was no way of sending more men to the Western Front that would get there imminently. The Germans, however, had thousands of men behind the trenches. Um, Moreover, their troops were exhausted. They had been moved into the Argonne sector from combat from the Assain River um, with no rest and had very little sleep in the last month. They had literally no rest between them. The 77th Division was a New York outfit known as the Times Square Division, with the Statue of Liberty emblem on its shoulder patches. Many of the troops were actually from Brooklyn. Manhattan and the Bronx um, which had been recently places that were drafted um, funny how they didn't draft sort of the Upper East Side but you know we'll leave that um, a few days earlier one of them had been found calmly smoking behind some shrubbery during a battle by the way of explanation he gestured towards his rifle and say I can't make the bullets go into this thing and um, Don't really know why that's relevant, but that was just one of the quotes from one of the soldiers that I've added in. Um, Along with his other worries, Wittersley was particularly annoyed by the stipulation in Pershing's attack order that his battalion had to keep going forwards even if the flanks were left exposed to the Germans. That's not a good tactic really, to leave your whole flank open. I mean, it's it's well known in in any type of warfare, you can even go back to medieval warfare if the flanks are left open you're up for attack Um, Wittersley's riflemen uh, advanced along the extreme west side of the Argonne Forest Um, chronically laggard French troops moved through the open fields of the Isain River um, on their left flank only two days before Um, in the same area so this was an area that the French had already been into and failed so now the Americans had to have a go German infiltrators had slipped behind with Wittersley's left and had surrounded two of his companies for several hours Um, and he was sure that this was going to be a bit of a problem Um, Wittersley was not a field officer who could accept what he seemed to be a dangerous illogical combat order Um, without complaint he was stern upright New England Yankee from Pittsfield uh, Massachusetts and he graduated um, of Williams College he was a tall slim man who wore glasses and looked a little bit like President Woodrow Wilson Um, he was also a precise Wall Street lawyer who had given up his own practice to take reserve officers' refresher course at Pittsburgh um, when the war broke out. So this isn't a hoodlum or a hard-working man from the Bronx. This is a upper-class lawyer. Um, so he knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just cannon fodder. Um, McMurty, a husky and cheerful New Yorker who was his uh, right hand man who later made a million dollars in the stock market <laughs> had, a, had served with Teddy Roosevelt's rough riders in the Spanish American war um, and the battle of One Hill. So he had a little bit of experience. But he agreed with Wittersley that carrying out this order would be impossible. Not only impossible stupid. The regimenters uh, the regimental commander, Colonel Cromwell Stacy, uh, tended to agree with Wittersley's argument that his battalion was too weak in numbers and too exhausted to renew the attack the next day. The colonel also saw the danger of an outflanking movement by the Germans and he passed Wittersley's complaints along the bridge. Br- Brigadier General Evan M. Johnson, um, who thought enough of them to ask his division commander, Major General Robert Alexander, if the attack could at least be postponed to give the troops a little more rest. Alexander was the type of ramrod general who had urged his 77th division before the start of September to fight hard and keep your spirits high with your bayonets bright. He sent word back to Stacy that the attack would start the next morning as scheduled. Tough shit. When Stacy passed the order to Wittersley, um, the Major saluted and said, alright I'll attack, but whether you'll hear from me again, I don't know. He knew that he was probably going to his death. He knew there was realistically no chance of his battalion or his division even coming out of this. They were outnumbered They were tired, they were weak, they were exhausted and they were leaving their entire flank wide open to be surrounded by the Germans. The morning of the attack on October 2nd was foggy and wet. Field kitchens that were supposed to serve hot breakfast to the 308th Battalion never appeared um, and the shivering riflemen chewed on hardtack and canned corned beef while they listened to the half-hour artillery barrage that was supposed to clear the route for their advance at six thirty, um, at six, th- sorry at six, and then at six thirty, rockets flashed in the grey sky, signalling the time to move forward along the twenty-mile Argonne front. So this is a long stretch. Battalion, um, the infantrymen and machine gunners stood up, and the field. Um, was ready for them to take. They, they worked out into the field and into the thick underbrush. Wittersley himself led the way close behind the forward scouts, his pistol in one hand and a pair of barbed wire cutters in the other. It was unusual for a battalion commander to be in the front of an advancing infantry troop, but Wittersley wanted to make sure that his forward squads were heading in the right direction and keeping in contact with him um, in the confusing tangle of the forest. So the forest was quite dense. I don't know if anyone's seen the Argonne Forest. It's quite dense. It was very easy for people to get lost or to go the wrong way. Um, And unfortunately, in this type of war, if you went the wrong way, you are probably dead. The orders of the day called for Wittersley and McNulty to leave their battalions uh, almost, to lead their battalions almost straight north through a sector of the German line that ran across a ravine with steep slopes on both sides. For starters, this seemed impossible, and on the high ground above the both sides of the ravine, there were enemy machine guns and mortar shelling emplacements um, that could pour heavy fire onto the slopes below. If they could get through the ravine, the two battalions were to keep moving north. And up the point um, on a high ground beyond the Charvelot Brook, where an ancient Roman road ran eastwards to Charvelot Mill. They were to dig in, establish liaison with the French troops on the left side, um, and another brigade on the 77th on the right. So, there was the French were supposed to catch up and the Rest of the division on the right hand side was supposed to catch up, and that's when he was to make. He was to wait for his further orders. Wittersley advanced during the morning into the ravine with three of his rifle companies and three of McMurty's companies deployed on the right hand slope. Much to his unease, two other companies, one on one of his and one of McMurty's battalion, had to be placed on the left slope of the ravine. Far from their commanders. By 10 o'clock, the whole force was pinned down in its advance by heavy German fire um, from the fortification on the high ground at the left side of the ravine. The Americans noticed to their surprise, however, that they were not getting much fire from the enemy gun emplacement above the east side of the ravine um, named Maps Hill 198. After, long, uh, after lunch, sorry, when the division headquarters ordered its troops to resume the attack, Wittersley decided to switch the direction of his advances and, staying away from the heavy gunfire on his left, take a chance at hitting Hill 198 on the right. There, to his gratification, his battalion broke through the German line with McMurty's men close behind taking two German officers and 28 enlisted men as prisoners and killing and wounding many others the Americans le- learned later that the fortifications on Hill 198 had been marked by older enemy soldiers and um, men they were basically they were men in their late forties and early fifties uh, on in this uh, this is who manned this uh, this hill um, they'd been without food or water for two days and most of them had deserted um, during the bombardment that was going on the day before. So, you know, they were they were quite lucky in that sense that they picked the right hill. Well, you know, Wittersley saw it and thought, right, this is where we're going. We're getting less fire from here. So he made the right decision as a commander. Wittersley had little trouble pushing on um, to his objective on the high ground beyond Charvelow Brook where he was to dig in for the night and he sent runners back to regimental headquarters to announce his position and ask for reinforcements. Makes sense. His small force had lost another 90 men so he's down to nearly 700 men now um, in the afternoons fighting and two rifle companies on the opposite side of the ravine were missing. So, that's another probably 100 men there, maybe more. But he doesn't know where they are. doesn't know if they're dead or alive. They're they're definitely missing. The news of Wittersley's drive through the German lines was greeted with happy excitement at the 77th Division's headquarters. It was the only successful attack of the day in the Argonne Forest. The French on Wittersley's left had been stopped cold, and on the right, the 77th 153rd Brigade and the 28th Pennsylvania Division had been unable to move. You're starting to see a bit of a problem here. He's now a couple of miles into enemy territory. He's got no reinforcements. Germans to the left, Germans in front, Germans to the right, clear space behind him for two miles. The Germans noticed this and are going to put men behind him as well. They waited for support, and Wittersley and McMurty arranged their rifle and machine gunners to form a pocket of resistance um, in an oval about three hundred yards wide, sixty yards deep. Machine guns were placed on both flanks and equipped with um, a French light machine gun. Um, which was the French version of the Browning automatic. And this was where they were to stay until reinforcements came. Overcoats and blankets had been left behind when the offensive started. Food and cigarettes were scarce. And the officers learned that two infantry com- companies had bought no rations with them. So they didn't have much food. And now they've got even less because two infantry divisions just forgot to bring it. After the defence lines were arranged, ration details were sent out. They never returned um, but water was discovered in the south of the position. There was a little spring of water. Problem with that, they you know you can survive for a long time with just water. The problem with that is this spring or this bit of water that they could find ...was in enemy territory... ...or at least... ...it was in an open field... ...where they were... ...pretty open to machine gun fire... ...so... ...yeah... ...not really the safest way to get water... ...some of them obviously did... ...um... ...but... ...yeah, it wasn't, uh, wasn't a great idea... ...the Germans in the Argonne Forest... Uh, ...had lines of telephone communication... Um, But Wittersley's unit did not. Uh, To get message back to his regimental command post, Wittersley used a relay team of runners um, posted at intervals in the woods behind him. Assigning riflemen to duty as uh, runners seriously depleted the firepower of his infantry, which it would do because you're using men to run rather than fight. Um... The Major considered human messengers to be more reliable than carrier pigeons, um, and they were his only other means of communication. He did have carrier pigeons with him. Um, Omar Richards, a French-Canadian private from upstate New York, who was a caretaker of the 1st Battalion's pigeons, had carried a cage with eight birds during the advance through the lines. The pigeons were trained to fly back to a loft at a division headquarters, each carrying a message written on a slip of rice paper um, in a metal capsule that was attached to its legs. Wittersley's unit had also bought a heavy roll of white cotton sheeting which was spread on the ground um, in a perimeter of their defence pocket to display the location of their position to any Allied plane that might fly over the top. When the news of Wittersley's breakthrough reached the seventy-seventh Division headquarters, Major General Alexander immediately ordered a battalion of infantry to form another regiment, then being held in reserve, to move forwards that night to reinforce Alexander. Uh, to reinforce um, Wittersley. Sorry, Alexander was eagerly uh, planning to capitalize on the opening in the German line by building up an offensive force that could take on the the gap that was left basically the main chain of enemy fortifications still in the Argon a few miles north was where he was aiming to get but only one of the four rifle companies sent into the pitch dark woods to help Wittersley actually managed to find him it was dark, it was the middle of the night you're in a forest and you get told to go in a certain direction it's not that easy um captain nelson holderman's company um company k from the 307th infantry's third battalion um they arrived um n- with a contingent of 97 officers um, and men so that's they had 97 they reinforced him with 97 men probably not what he was expecting he probably wanted a few more than that but 97 was what they got um this added little numerical strength to the band of survivors, um, and about that time, Wittersley and McMurty welcomed him, um, obviously because he was some sort of help. Um, he bought more ammunition, um, bought a few more um, supplies as well. So it was a it was a welcome, but is this all we are getting sort of attitude, Wittersley sent a group of fifty men. Um, into the forest to try and establish a bit of uh, a route back or communications And to have a look around and see what they might be facing um, they ran into a German group a German battalion and were Pretty much massacred uh, it was about 20 of them managed to crawl back to the pocket later in the morning they reported that there was a lot of Germans um, around them and the runner points that he'd left were scattered. In other words, they'd left, which, as, as bad as that is, maybe they were killed, maybe they were captured, maybe they just ran off for saving their own skin. We don't know. But whatever, his human carriers were no longer feasible. Early in the morning, patrols had found the Germans on the left flank of the pocket where the French were supposed to be advancing, and there were more Germans on the right. Wittersley realised that his small pocket was being surrounded. He asked Holderman, a cheerful and willing Californian, to take his company and some scouts who knew the terrain back towards Hill 198 to clear out the enemy machine gun positions he expected were being set up and therefore re-establish the line of the runner posts back to the regimental headquarters. Holderman found that Hill 198 was almost deserted when Wittersley had taken it the day before, had not only been re-occupied and heavily armed with machine guns by the Germans in the night, but it was also surrounded by new barbed wire, so they weren't getting back to it. When Haldeman tried to advance on the hill his men were hit by machine gun fire on their flanks and sniper from the woods behind them. Realising that his company was about to get cut off from the rear, Haldeman turned around and fought his way back across the Charvelo Brook to the shelter of the pocket with several wounded men staggering behind him. Now the Germans obviously knew that Wittersley had cut through their lines but he never expected or they never expected that he would be on his own, they believed that the Americans were coming back. There was going to be a big battalion coming through, not a small pocket of five, six hundred men. So they re-established everything that they could, um, and they assumed that Wittersley's men were an advance scouting party that would immediately be followed by a big American attacking force. And that's why the Germans rushed all available forces from all of their armies in the Argonne to that sector that was occupied by Wittersley to be ready to meet the big offensive the next day. When morning came, they had no trouble surrounding the circle of vastly outnumbered Americans um, because there was no reinforcements coming. By noon on October 3rd, Wittersley, McMurty and Haldeman realised that they were completely surrounded. A head count showed that after the casualties of the morning, there were only 550 men left in the pocket. Some who had been severely wounded as well. McMurty took a pad of paper um, and wrote on it and showed the message to Wittersley who nodded. McMurty called Corporal Walter Baldwin the 1st Battalion Message Clerk and told him to deliver the message to each of our company commanders. It read Our mission is to hold this position at all costs no falling back have this understood by every man in your command. The 550 men were there do or die there was no two ways about it you either hold that position or you die in that position. Wittersley sent a carrier pigeon to his division's headquarters with a message stating his exact position and his isolation, um, asking for reinforcements and artillery support. The pigeon delivered the message, but Major General Alexander, who already knew that Wittersley had been cut off, could do nothing for him. All the division's reserve troops were in combat on the front line, some of them supporting the embattled French on Wittersley's left, and others with a hard pressed 77th Division, 153rd Brigade on his right. The general's big hopes of the night before using Wittersley's gap as a doorway had basically dissolved. That wasn't going to happen. That afternoon, after the men in the pocket had eaten their last scraps of food, the Germans blasted them with mortar fire and grenades and made the first of many attempts to send riflemen crawling into their enclosure. The attacks were turned back by machine gun and automatic rifle fire, but at nightfall, Wittersley reported by by Carrier Pigeon that one-third of his force had been killed or seriously wounded, and all of his bandages and medical supplies had been used up. He asked for food, ammunition um, and medical supplies to be airdropped from the sky and pleaded again for artillery support. During the night's darkness, any sound of movement or groan of pain from a wounded man would draw a burst of machine gun fire from the Germans. The men in the pocket tried to be as quiet as possible, while they struggled to dig burial holes for their dead. The burly George McMurty crawled from one company to another, whispering in the woods um, and whispering words of encouragement that he repeated over and over again, everything is practically okay. He pleaded with one soldier um, who had been shot through his stomach, "Um, it pains like hell, Captain, he said, but I'll keep as quiet as I can. He died half an hour after uttering those words, knowing that he couldn't groan in pain. And if anyone... I mean, a gut wound is one of the worst, most painful ways to go, from what I've read. I mean, I don't know, obviously I'm not dead, but it is one of the most painful ways to go. The next morning, Friday the 4th of October, one of Holderman's patrols reported a gap in the German line on the pocket's rear right flank, Wittersley and McMurty debated about retreating through that opening, but realised quickly that uh, it would leave the wo- they'd have to leave their wounded men behind, um, which isn't really the right thing to do. Wittersley used two of his remaining four carrier pigeons to remind division headquarters that he needed medical supplies, food, and artillery. Um, report and gave a report that D and F companies were still missing on the left flank of the ravine you got to remember he didn't know what was happening all he knows is he's surrounded he doesn't know that the rest of his forces or the rest of the forces are fighting he doesn't know that he doesn't know anything all he knows is that you know he's stuck in the middle and you've got to remember as well at this point during this this battle no one can get any messages to him he can send messages back and he's not even sure if these messages get through because pigeons aren't a reliable source you know they do go missing they do get shot um so he doesn't even know his messages are getting through and he can't get any messages back early that afternoon help finally arrived allied planes swooped over the pocket Turned back and flew to the rear. The officers felt encouraged. They were finally going to get at least some sort of help. The first plane had seen that they were trapped. And dropped the supplies. Um, Yeah. Not to them though. Dropped the supplies to the Germans. So the Germans were very very impressed by this. That the Americans not only were trapped and at the mercy of the German soldiers, but the Americans were going to drop supplies for the Germans to help help them. Not a very good idea. Um, a few minutes later, a, bar- a barrage of artillery fire exploded behind the pocket to the southeast. Somebody yelled, It's ours. Um, probably muttered by, Oh shit, and a few other things. A few men stood up and cheered, then the exploding bursts of fire moved slowly towards the pocket, into the middle of the American position. Knocking down trees and throwing up showers of turf and foliage, the officers, assuming that the barrage would soon move on to the German lines, tried to quiet their panic-stricken men. Wittersley left his command post um, to walk around in the open, trying to put on a show of calm. McMurty shouted, take it easy, it won't last long. But it did. (laughs) The Americans rained a heavy downpour of shellfire on their own people. Um, Walter Baldwin tried to lead a wounded friend to cover Um, and he was joined by Private Robert Mason, Wittersley's orderly, and the 1st Battalion's Sergeant Major. A shell exploded on them, tearing out the wounded man's chest. Um, His body completely disappeared. We could only find his helmet and his pistol, Manson said later. Um, Baldwin was picked up and hurled away, basically. There was nothing they could do with him. Um... There were only two pigeons left in Omar Richards' cage. Wittersley wrote a message and handed it to Richards. We are along the road, parallel, 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Now, I think I'd have been a bit more harsh than that, but... Yeah, you can see how bad this is actually getting for them now. They're trapped. They're surrounded by Germans. They've got no help. They're getting killed every single night, every single day. One of them makes a move or a sound. They're attacked. They are The Germans are sending men to attack them. They're getting sent back. But they're running out of food, running out of water, running out of ammo, running out of medical supplies. The Americans fly over to drop this stuff to them, and they drop it on the Germans. Then, the artillery fire that they've been waiting for, from their own troops, starts to rain down upon them. It's not really, not really going very well. Um, Richards was nervously taking one of the pigeons out of the cage, and the bird fluttered out of his hands. The only one left was a bird named Cher Ami, or Dear Friend. Richards clipped the message to Cher Ami's leg, cupped the bird in his hands and tossed it into the sky. The pigeon flew in a circle um, and then calmly came to rest on the branch of a tree. Wittersley and Richards shouted at Cher Ami and clapped their hands, waved their helmets um, and the the bird refused to move Um, they picked up stones and threw them at the pigeon Uh, Richard ended up climbing up the tree um, and shook the branch where the bird was sat Um, Jeremy fluttered his wings and flew away in a storm of German rifle fire um, and shrapnel from the American (laughs) the American artillery the barrage thundered on for another two hours until Cher Ami reached the pigeon loft and a telephone message from division headquarters finally put a stop to it Cher Ami was stuffed and is in a museum I want to say the Smithsonian but I'm not sure um, I'll have to double check that but um, I believe it also won a medal as well for that um that was a night of agonized suffering and hunger in the pocket. Um, many of the unwounded men were too weak to join in the work of digging graves. So now the dead around them were just left there to rot. The next day, Saturday, October the fifth, Allied planes flew overhead and dropped food and ammunitions again, but it landed on the Germans the Germans again. Um, now they only landed a few yards away. You know, probably talking 10, 20 yards. But that's how close these Germans were. You know, they they, were, they couldn't do anything about it. Um, they were that close that the Germans and the Americans were actually shouting insults at each other. That's how close they were. Sometimes when a German officer called the roll of names of his company, the Americans would yell back in reply. Um... At one point in the siege, a German yelled to the Yanks in a in a voice, um, apparently in a British accent, I say you chaps, you haven't a chance, why not surrender while there's still time? He said it in a British accent. Um, one American shouted back, who's that? The Prince of Wales. Um, and another one added, I thought the Limeys were on our side. So there was a bit of banter there, but I suppose you've got to make the, the best of a bad situation. Um... Wittersley's plight was now well known. Um, yeah, he was, he was not doing well. Um, it was actually got back to the first army headquarters and it was all over the United States. A United States press correspondent, Fred Ferguson, um, had filed a dramatic report of the trapped forces of the Americans um, dubbed the story The Lost Battalion. Pershing was embarrassed by the widely publicised account of his army's failure to save a small band of brave soldiers. He sent a stern order that Saturday to General Alexander of the 77th Division and said, I direct that a vigorous effort be made this afternoon to relieve the companies on the left of the 77th Division that are cut off. Wittersley's regimental commander, the same Colonel Stacey, who had relayed the Major's complaints about the order earlier in the week, was leading a hard-pressed force in the ravine behind the pocket to save them. Stacey flatly refused to lead an assault on the Germans between the position of Wittersley's pocket unless he was to be reinforced by French troops. Kind of makes sense because the Germans were dug in um, when the brigade commander General Johnson passed the message to General Alexander, the division commander blew up and ordered that Johnson to relieve Stacy um, and see that the assault went forward. So Stacy was actually removed because he refused to to carry it out. He knew it was death. It was it was a suicide mission going in there to save them. You know, essentially, those men were pretty much dead already. The lost battalion was to be lost. You know, there was no. you could see it was a suicide mission, and he refused to send his men in. So they just took him. took the command off him and gave it to someone else. Johnson, a fifty-seven-year-old brigadier with the thirty-six years in regular army, gave Stacy's regiment uh, gave Stacy's regimental command to a captain. Um, he had no lieutenants, colonels, or majors left. So it got dropped quite a long way down, um, then personally led a company of 85 riflemen up the ravine towards Wittersley's position. After 90 minutes of hard fighting and receiving a leg wound from a machine gun bullet, the one-star general was forced to halt his advances and turn back, leaving 20 of his men wounded or dead behind him. Wittersley's dwindling survivors in the isolated pocket endured the most frightening ordeal of the week the next day, Sunday the 6th of October, when the Germans decided to attack them again. this time with flame flamethrowers. I mean that's just that's just not even it's not even fair warfare is it? You're in such a close knitted position. And they're not even firing on you properly. They're bringing in flamethrowers. Some of the Americans backed off in terror uh, from the jets of flames that flashed hundreds of feet in front of the crouching attackers. Um, Holderman, now severely wounded with a grenade fragment embedded in his back, um, leaning on two rifles for support, directed a barrage of automatic rifle fire that dropped all, all of the flame operators basically if you hit I mean you probably all know this but if you hit a flamethrower with a direct shot that flamethrower explodes so that was pretty much the stand up and just shoot them because they will but it's the horror of it I think more than anything Um, the German assault went on for more than two hours um, and a few Americans and two of the machine guns were actually captured um, more of Wittersley's men were killed or seriously wounded. Um, the next day, October the 7th, a group of nine famished enlisted um, men from one of McMurty's um, companies crawled through the German lines searching for packages of food that had been dropped by the American planes. Um, they were trapped by an enemy patrol, five were killed and four were wounded and taken prisoner. A German lieutenant who had spent six years as a tungsten salesman in Seattle um, before the war questioned the prisoners and suggesting to his command officer that one of them, named Private Lowell Hollingshead, to be sent back to the Americans with a surrender proposal. That afternoon, Hollingshead approached the Pockets outpost Uh, carrying a white flag and a note addressed to the commanding officer of the 2nd Battalion. It said, The suffering of your wounded men can be heeded over here in the German lines, and we are appealing to your human sentiments. A white flag shown by one of your men will tell us that you agree to these conditions. Please retreat, private... Uh, Hollingshead, as an honourable man, he is quite a soldier, and we envy you. Wittersley and McMurty read the note and showed it to Holderman. Walter, Walter Baldwin, uh who was there, recalled later that three officers smiled at each other, and McMurty said, "They're begging us to quit. They're more worried than we are." Wittersley did not bother to send a reply. And immediately ordered that the white sheeting spread on the ground as a marker to be rolled up and put under cover. The major did not want this mistaken as a German, as a surrender for the Germans. When word of the surrender uh, offer spread through the pocket, it lifted the spirits of the exhausted survivors, and the unusual quiet of late afternoon. you heeny bastards come and get us, followed by a chorus of loud obscenities from the comrades, were shouted back at the German lines. It did nothing but encourage the Americans that offer. The Americans thought, great, they want us to quit, they want us to surrender. We're not going to. It was, it was a, it, it had the opposite effect of what the Germans expected. Um, and as darkness fell, Wittersley and McMurty wondered how they could survive the day though you know it was even though the morale had obviously been boosted a little bit, it didn't look good. Um, you know they they were too weak to dig graves. they had no very very little ammunition left. And they were pretty much down to the point where if the Germans attacked again, they'd have to use bayonets to fight them off. Um, Wittesley had most likely given up hope um, now a volunteer I'm going to try and pronounce his Abe Krochinski Krochinski um, who had tried to make his way out of the pocket in a search to help that morning uh, was still alive two other men who had gone off with him came back reporting that he had been spotted and pinned down by ma- enemy machine gun fire So they just assumed that this guy was dead. But hold your thought with that one. Shortly after 7 o'clock that evening, Lieutenant Richard Tillman um, and a patrol of riflemen from the 77th Division, nearby 307th Infantry, walked into the pocket without firing a shot. After Wittersley's forces uh, had been trapped, Pershing had rushed the experienced veterans of the 1st Division the big red one, into the action at the Aire River um, on the east side of the forest and they scored a major breakthrough in the, the German lines. They staggered, the staggered blow that weekend of the enemy's hold in the Argonne sector had finally enabled the Americans behind Wittersley and the French on the left to move forwards. Now, the Germans who had asked Wittersley to surrender a few hours before found themselves in being in danger of being surrounded themselves unknown to wittersley and McMurty their besiegers had been silently pulled back and retreated north soon after sundown the Americans had walked into the pocket to save them and they didn't even realize because they were that tired that bad they didn't even realize they were there I mean that's You Just imagine how exhausted you are, five days of solid fighting, not knowing if you're going to die or not, for reinforcements to finally arrive, and you can't even be happy about it because you don't even know they're there, because you're so tired and exhausted. Um, Some reporters say that Tillman's patrol was guided back to the pocket by Abe Kroczynski who was in fact awarded the Distinguished Service Cross for his bravery. So he hadn't died, he was the one that saved them. Other survivors recalled that Tillman's men were already handing out cans of corned beef by the time Kroczynski returned with another patrol of Americans. Anyway, by then, the Germans were gone and the five-day siege had ended. The next morning... 190 of the 550 Americans who had been trapped in the pocket earlier that week were able to walk back through the valley to their regimental headquarters. Another 190 were seriously wounded, 107 were dead and 63 were missing. Shortly after daybreak, when the ambulances were arriving, Corporal Baldwin, the messenger clerk, saw an officer with two stars on his cap walking along the old roman road towards the pocket um, it was major general alexander of the 77th division Car- commander where's Wittersley? he wanted to know down at the foot of the hill sir said baldwin pointing towards where the major was personally passing out food to his men shall i get him for you by no means, said the General, I'll go to him. Wittersley, McMurty and Holderman were awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. In later years, the jovial McMurty enjoyed attending the Lost Battalion's reunion dinners and picked up the cheque for most of them until he died in 1958 at the age of 82. Wittersley came home tense and uncomfortable, As uh, an acclaimed war hero. Besieged by invitations to civic and charitable banquets. That he found almost irritating. Um, A bachelor engrossed in his work as a lawyer on Wall Street. He wanted to forget the war. And a friend remembered him complaining. Not one day goes by. But I hear from some of my old outfit. Usually about some sorrow or misfortune. I cannot bear much more. I want to be left in peace. On Armistice Day in 1921, Wittersley, McMurty, and the other Medal of Honor winners attended the dedication of the new Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. Wittersley had little to say to anybody and seemed ill at ease. Two weeks later, on Thanksgiving, he boarded a ship that was sailing on holiday to Havana. That evening, when liquor was served outside the three-mile limit, he sat up in the saloon and announced that he was going to bed. He went on deck and jumped overboard and died. That is the story of the Lost Battalion. Now, I find that a fascinating war story. It's just mind-boggling how... I always find these stories just crazy. How people fight to the death. Those five days of being stuck there. And you've got to remember, I mean, Wittersley. there, I mean, obviously he's he's ended his own life. But he started with 1,600 men in his battalion. That's how many he had. He goes into a battle. He loses 800 of his men. He's then told the next day, to go into battle again he knows he can't do it he takes all of them out he loses 250 men he takes a position and he's stuck there for 5 days under fire under barrage from his own uh, artillery getting no supplies, getting no support they're not even burying the dead they're in a little pocket and they're not even burying their dead the dead are just there, rotting, smelling around them and he walks out of that with 190 men from 1600 down to 190 all under his command it's not un it's not unrealistic as to why he just had enough and and this is a, a recurring story of soldiers who have been in battle and soldiers who have seen stuff like this that they just can't carry on they just can't cope with it. Um, and, you know, um, hopefully this is something I never have to experience. But um, I don't ever plan on, on going to war. But, it, I, I mean, these men, I mean, Wittersley, he never he never wanted to experience that. He was a lawyer in Wall Street. He had a good job. He had no need to join the army, but he did. Um, and that's what I mean. It's It's just... Yeah, it's, it's a horrific story, but it has got a, you know, a good ending and the lost battalion went down in history as um an amazing feat of American bravery and and it was but it's just every story is rooted in tragedy and this one is is definitely quite tragic and it's yeah. Let me know what you think. Um I think it's a, a very interesting story quite a long episode, I do apologise for that, but um, hopefully you haven't missed my voice, you've missed my voice so much that you're enjoying this uh, this podcast, I am going to try and get some more out for you, um, obviously like I said, there has been a few issues and timing has not been very good to actually find time to record so this is why obviously uh, I'm recording now, so um, hopefully you'll all forgive me for that and uh, hopefully we'll see you next time